All right, today, page 831 in your New Testament, if you have the Coffee House Bible, it's Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 will be in the Sermon on the Mount today. This is part two in a series called Wronged, and today is about love your enemies. Years ago, 1933, the rise of the Nazi party prompts Dietrich Bonhoeffer to really start examining some of his own kind of church allegiance, because the German church is... It seems to be going along with the state. It's going along with the political parties. And so Bonhoeffer and many others, they kind of declare that we're not going that path. And one of the things Bonhoeffer does, in addition to starting a new church and a new church movement, is he starts a new seminary. And it's sort of an underground seminary, Frankenwalde. So it's this place where it's, it's residency, it's rule of life, it's community. If you've ever read the book Life Together by Bonhoeffer, it's his book for the community, and it is hardcore. So hardcore that one of his friends gets a little nervous about what's happening with his buddy Bonhoeffer. And he says, I think you're taking this a little too seriously. And so he, he sends him down. He comes and visits Bonhoeffer and his friend. They take a little ride in a boat, and they row. They get out of the boat, and they climb over the hill. And over the hill, they can see this squadron of German Nazi soldiers. This is before the war. This is them just preparing. And as, as they're there, you see the, the planes flying in. You see the squadrons in formation. You see so much preparation for what is about to come. And what Bonhoeffer basically says is this has to be stronger than that. He says, he spoke of a new generation of Germans training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. He told his friend, it would be necessary, you actually have to have a superior discipline to the Nazis if they're going to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. So, John Tyson says in his book, Beautiful Resistance, what he was doing in Finkenwalde had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. This must be stronger than that. The times called for a beautiful resistance. And so Bonhoeffer and his community, they stepped forward into that resistance. In just a few years, more than half of his students would leave to join the Nazi army. And then a few years later, his school would close. A few years after that, he would be executed by Hitler. A beautiful resistance. And it's gone. What's the point? Let's, let's read our text for today. You have heard that it was said... Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Bonhoeffer looks out at the Nazi party, preparing for war, and he says, this has to be stronger than that. Uh, last week, my family took that trip. We drove all the way across Oklahoma. We went to Paladura Canyon State Park in Texas, my homeland. Love that place. 
No, no one else? <laughs> okay. And in the, the gift shop at the state park, I found this little book here. And I was like, Kelsey, you got to take a picture of this book. This may be helpful for my sermon. You see what it's called? Texas Feuds, 10 Texas Feuds. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But in Texas, he has always had plenty of help. You know what feuds are? So to get the full experience of traveling, my family decided to listen to a few Western novels on the way there. I love Louis L'Amour, and it had been a long time since I read The Daybreakers. Daybreakers was about brothers leaving Tennessee to go to New Mexico to help settle this frontier kind of dangerous land. And I forgot how violent <laughs> the frontier Western novels are. And so this was really familiar to us. But we, we drove through Texas. We went to New Mexico. And here's a scene that we saw. Uh, this is St. Geronimo's Church in Taos, New Mexico. And we went on this guide through here. And the tour guide, a native woman, part of the tribe there, she was describing what happened at this place. There was a, a large church here at one point. And she said all her people kind of gathered in this place in this church for sanctuary from the American army as it came in. She said, but that didn't stop them. We thought sanctuary would stop them, but instead they blasted cannons at us, and then they killed everyone inside. What she didn't share was that in the days before that, a massive mob of both Mexican soldiers and her tribe had been basically rounding up and assassinating every official that the U.S. government had put into place. They had taken the governor who was just appointed, and they brought his family before him, and they scalped him. Left that part out. There was hundreds of people just roaming through murdering. And so here's, here's our vengeance, and then here's our vengeance, but with a cannon. It seems to just go on like this in, in all of the feuds. I, you can read Western novels, and that's everybody's story. The book we were reading, The Daybreakers, it was about this family feud that they said went on for seven years, and they killed like dozens and dozens of the other ones. You remember what a feud is? This is Mark Twain describing a feud. A feud is this way. This is Buck telling Huck Finn. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides go for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. There's a feud. And our country was settled on this type of vengeance. From the very beginning, we are a people who settled things with violent war. I mean, from the Revolutionary War all the way through. And so I was so struck as I was kind of in these places filled with murderous vengeance at a couple of things. One, how foreign they felt to me. Like, it just wouldn't strike me to shoot someone with a pistol for when they wronged me or my brother or my family. It wouldn't strike me. It wouldn't strike me to blast a church with a cannon. But the other thing that struck me was not just how foreign it was, but how recent it was. You see, my, my ancestors, they, they went to New Mexico around the same time that all of this was happening. It's like, I, I knew my great-granddad. I knew him for years and years and years. This is like his parents' generation. And of course, this is just the southwestern version. There's a very Memphis version, too. And these, these cycles of vengeance just seem to keep going. Cycles of violence. What is going to stop cycles of violence? Perhaps, perhaps Jesus has something to say about such things. So today we're, we're diving into the Sermon 
on the Mount, but I'm fully aware that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is what John Tyson calls probably his most controversial command. In my experience, this is true. So if you think of like church history in the 1600s, there's this massive reformation. Catholics are against Protestants, but the one thing that united Catholics and Protestants was a hatred, a murderous hatred for the pacifists. You see, the one thing that united Catholics and Protestants in the 1600s was that they were both killing the Anabaptists. The people who wouldn't kill anyone else, what do we do with them? We have to kill them. Of course, in American history, this is even more controversial perhaps than that because we have this history politically of World War II and Vietnam and draft dodgers and people claiming nonviolence. And so I look around, and this is mostly a young church, and so you're all thinking, this isn't controversial. But if you're a part of a church that has multiple generations, it's incredibly controversial to talk about Jesus' nonviolence teachings. I know from personal experience, the closest I ever got to being fired was on this teaching. It was, uh, it was a thing. I'll save that story for another day or a personal table, perhaps. So it's controversial because of our political parties and our history of war. It's, it's controversial even in civil rights movement. You, MLK is only like half the story. There's also Malcolm X and there's the Black Panthers. And even within like movements known for justice and peace today, there's, there's still a splintering. This is a very controversial teaching. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. There may be repercussions, but I think Jesus is still worth listening to. Not only his most controversial command, it's also his most often quoted command, and this is why it's worth talking about. You see, in the first 400 years of Christianity, this is like Christianity from Jesus to Constantine, love your enemies is the most cited command anywhere. There's 26 different places that we can find by 300 AD where people are saying, love your enemies. Love your enemies is the hallmark of early Christianity. It is the summary of what Christianity is all about. And so it may be controversial, but it's also essential. There's nothing more basic to Christianity in the teaching than love your enemies. This is it. Love your enemies. It's the most often quoted command, and yet today my claim is that it may be Jesus' most ignored command. Most ignored command. To kind of back this up, there's a big research study about a decade ago from Barna in their frames data. And what they showed is that whenever Christians think about violence and how to respond to threats, they said uh, the majority of practicing Christians are totally fine with being violent. But nine in 10 of those think Jesus would disagree with them. Just, just to clarify, <laughs> this, is, this is a quote from uh, somebody's book on, on nonviolence. He says, the most unsettling sections of the data was the difference between practicing Christians' attitudes to violence and then what they thought Jesus would think. In question after question, Christians said one thing while admitting that they thought Jesus would answer differently. Christian opinions about violence look more like those of nonbelievers than the, what they think are the views of Jesus. Not even than what are the views of Jesus. What they think are the views of Jesus. Guys, can we just agree on this, that if Jesus says it, we should go with Jesus on it? <laughs> so it's, it's bewildering to me 
that people say, Jesus has this view, but I disagree with him, and I hold this view instead. That's the state of American Christianity today. This has to be stronger than that. And so we hear lots of people who say, Jesus can't mean what he says, at least not for us. It's impractical. It's, it's impossible. And so it's, it's a little ironic that as safe as our culture is, we seem to have given up the teaching on how Jesus tells us to treat our enemies. Reed talked about last week how we explore conflict with personal slights. And we have very few tools culturally to really have healthy confrontation and healthy conflict. How much more so do we have tools to deal with enemy love and how to go not just with neighbors and friends and family, but across the aisle to our enemies? And so instead, wounds fester, people leave, ghosting and gossiping are the way of the day. And so if we can't reconcile with friends and neighbors, how much more so with our enemies? And yet, this is Jesus' basic teaching about the kingdom of God, to love your enemies. So, it's highly controversial, admittedly, but it's essential. It's the most often quoted text in early Christianity. It's reflected on in Paul and Peter and John. They're all kind of riffing on this teaching of love your enemies. And yet there's this disparity with Christians today in our churches. And so how do we make a path forward? I think the path forward is just to go back to Jesus. And when we go back to Jesus, we find out that his teaching was incredibly revolutionary, not only for our day, but for his day too. I think this is Jesus' most revolutionary command for his own context. Here's what I mean. This is Preston Sprinkle. He has a little book called Fight. It's now got a new name because it's actually about nonviolence. Fight makes it sound like he's about violence. It's a little misnomer. That's part of the point. But in Fight, he says this. The Prince of Peace was born into a world drowning in violence. He says the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this period in between. He says it was anything but silent. Kingdom rose up against kingdom, nations warred against nation, and the Jewish people, he says, hacked their way to freedom with swords baptized in blood. That's what happened in between the Old Testament and the coming of Christ in the New Testament. There's this Maccabean revolution. Have you heard of the Maccabees? They're the local mascot for the JCC. <laughs> the hammer is what Maccabeus means. And there's this this man, Judas, and his family, Judas the Hammer, he ra raises up against the Greeks and their power. And there's this guerrilla warfare effort to violent revolution against them. They slaughter the Greeks. They reclaim the throne. And now a Jewish man is finally reigning as king in Jerusalem again. We have power. And then their kings are as bad as any Greek king ever was. One of the, the line of Maccabees, it says they butchered the... Uh, they crucified 800 Pharisees in one day of their own people. They butchered their wives and children before their eyes. And then Josephus, he's describing this. He says the, the king, Maccabeus, he reclined amidst his concubines, enjoyed this spectacle. On another occasion, another king executed 6,000 Jews for throwing fruit at him during a festival. They were just as violent as anyone ever was. And so the Romans came in with this little group, and they put an end to the Jewish revolution. Pompey, he marched to Judea. He killed 12,000 soldiers and he took the land of Judea for Rome. And he put in this puppet king, Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great was a great builder. He was a powerful man, but he wasn't really the Jewish king that was promised. And so when he died, there was this mood of revolt, to use the language of N.T. Wright, that was not far below the surface. And especially when he died, it seemed that all of Judea was waiting for the true king to come back. 4 B.C., his death. Around the same year, Jesus of Nazareth was born as the would-be Messiah. This century, this first century that Jesus was born into, had so many messianic violent revolutions. There was the one of Simon who wanted to kill Romans and claim the throne. He was executed. There was Judas. When Jesus was 12 years old, a man named Judas led a revolution from Nazareth. He was killed. Judas's sons, Jacob and Simon, they led violent revolts. They were crucified. Ptolemaeus, he was executed. Thutis, he was executed. Menahem, he was caught. He was dragged through the streets, and he was tortured to death. There was Simon, another Simon. He was actually taken to Rome. He was tied up, dragged through the city. And then he was executed at the Roman Forum. And so here is the context that Jesus is born into, where messiahs lead revolutions of violence to overthrow their oppressors. And in this context, it's the one where Jesus says, do not resist, love your enemies. So, with all of this in our minds, let's look at what the Messiah actually says. Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 38. This is page 831 in your Bibles. And let's just go line by line through this, okay? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And this is a kind of a catchphrase that he has in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses it six times. It's, it's this thing, but it's actually this. It's, you've heard this, but I say this. And each one of these has a similar structure. He gives the old saying... He gives the new saying, and then he gives the application with a couple of examples of how to concretely live this out. So you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And of course, in a Jewish context, they would have heard this all their lives. This is just the law. This is Leviticus. This is Exodus. This is Deuteronomy. Here's Deuteronomy's version of this text. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It's the ancient legal practice in Latin called lex talionis. It's just the law of retaliation. And this is actually a law that has two big purposes. One, it keeps you from going overboard. I, let me tell you, if somebody cut off your hand, you would want to cut off their head, not their hand. So it limits retribution. But do you notice this phrase here, show no pity? The law also requires retribution. And it's because in most cultures, the rich and the powerful, the people of the class, the people who know the judge, they get an easy pass. They find a way out of it. And so Israel wants to say, no, even the rich and powerful have to be held accountable. There are no special rules for special people. And so it limits, but also requires what it says, show no pity, no mercy. And Jesus is He's pulling in this command, and he's saying, I want to help you understand what this actually meant all along. That the law is pointing to it really deep. Jesus doesn't dismiss the Old Testament law. Instead, he deepens it consistently in these, in these six examples. But he's, so he says this, but I tell you, McKnight in his commentary, he says, people would have been saying, who does he think he is? You have heard it said, but I say, why should we listen to you? Who do you think you are? It's, it's amazing how Jesus, his authority rests only on him alone. 
I've shared this before as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, that the prophets of the Old Testament, they have to say, thus saith the Lord. The Lord, he told me this to tell you that, not Jesus. Jesus just says, I say, and that's enough. God come in the flesh. Whenever he speaks, he speaks with authority as they're shocked at the end of the sermon. But I say, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, this language of resist, I think, needs some clarification. Because when we hear do not resist, it makes it sound like just basic submission. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus has in mind at all. When you look at his example, he gives four examples in the next two verses. And they're all active resistance. <laughs> they're, they're not just going along and submitting and doing the thing. You have to go above and beyond. It's active, not passive. So do not resist has to mean something else besides just submit, just passiveness. Do not resist, whenever you look at the, the language here, it often means violent resistance. There's a violence that's part of what this word means in almost all of its occurrences in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I was looking at Sprinkle again in his book, Fight, as he's talking about this. He says the Greek word for resist, often though not always, refers specifically to violent resistance. In the Old Testament, it's often used of military resistance. In the New Testament, scholars say it's about violent rev revolts and insurrections and war and attack. And so whenever he says do not resist, he seems to be saying don't resist violently. Does that mean there are possibilities of other kinds of resistance? We'll, we'll look at that. But I, I think you remember in Paul, in Ephesians 6, when he was talking about the armor of God, he says, you need to put on the whole armor of God that you can stand. That's this word, that you can resist. But he says that our enemies, remember, our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're principalities, they're powers, they're spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So there's some kind of warfare that's happening that does not require violence against flesh and blood, but does require resistance. Stand, he says. So, N.T. Wright's translation in the Kingdom New Testament, don't use violence to resist evil. Bruner, he says, do not ever try to get even. Or sprinkle, put simply, when Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, he specifically prohibits using violence to resist evil. The evil one is literally the evil one. It's just anybody who is evil. Now, sometimes when people look at this text, they're like, but you don't know. Sometimes really bad people show up. It's like, yeah, that's what Jesus is assuming here. That's why he uses this language of an evil person. So what does he say as examples of how to apply this? He actually applies this in almost every sphere of life. But his spheres of life very specifically contextualized to his setting in the first century. What would it look like for a Jew to practice what Jesus is saying? That's what he's answering. Our challenge is to figure out what it looks like for a Memphian to practice what he's saying. So how do we translate his examples into today? That's, that's the cause of, of wisdom. So he says, first example, slap on the cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You probably know this. What he has in mind is not a punch. It's, this is not just something meant to take you out physically. It's actually meant to humiliate you and your honor. This is a backhanded slap. Your, your right cheek, if you're facing me. Anybody? Any volunteers? No. <laughs> okay. Too many. 
So it would be a, to hit somebody with a slap on the on the right cheek. You have to backhand them. Did you know in the first century Jewish law, it's actually more egregious to backhand somebody than it is to punch them, because it's it's insult to injury. There's actually a far greater legal penalty for people who do this. But this is the example Jesus uses. Insult to injury. He says, when someone insults you and injures you, he says, turn the other cheek also. It is an act, not just of submission, but of standing up, of looking in the eyes, of saying, I've got another one. There's some kind of resistance that he's pointing at. Second example. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Hand over your coat as well. So your shirt is inside your coat. This is about all you've got on. And so he says, if this is what you want, McKnight says in his commentary, you're basically saying strip down naked in front of him and the judge and saying, here I am. He says, be willing to be humiliated as an act of resistance against their oppression. This is, this is pretty wild. But this seems to be... Just commonly understood, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, there's Corinthians who are suing each other. And he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've completely been defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul doesn't understand how Christians can prefer their rights over being wronged. Third example, number three. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, this would be military conscription. The Romans are here. They're in charge. And if they say carry a mile, which is the legal limit of what the Roman can ask you to do, it's sort of like in the, in the colonist days here. You don't really want to put the British soldiers up for room and board. And so there's limits on what they can do. It's the same kind of deal. He says, they can ask for one mile. He says, but here's what I want you to do. Go two. Go two miles. And some of these things, like turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, are just common phrases <laughs> in our day. But they've totally lost their meaning. We have to find ways of recapturing them. So fourth example, last one. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. you remember the, the story of Jean Valjean and Les Mis? Nobody. Okay, so somebody, you've seen the movie. Actually, Kelsey and I were at that movie the night she gave birth to Annie, right? Well, sure, the next night. We went into the hospital right after that. It just took a while. Remember, he, he's stealing from a church, and the, the cops bring John Valjean back, and they make him confront the priest, and they say, we saw this guy with all your silverware. And he says, oh, did you forget the candlesticks? And in this act of generosity, he calls him my friend, and he calls him my brother, and he says, I have bought you. I've bought your freedom. You're redeemed. And Jean Valjean's life is changed through this expression of grace. And this seems to be some of what not only Victor Hugo had in mind, but what Jesus has in mind in the way of the kingdom. That when we're wronged, we retaliate with love. Jesus goes on. He says, Next one, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where have they heard this? Well, this is also law, sort of. This is probably a misreading of Leviticus 19. Take a look at the language of love and hate from their law itself. Do not hate, do not hate. Who? 
a fellow Israelite, one of your people. Don't hate him in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so he will not share, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. Don't hate your neighbor, love your neighbor. But in the Jewish idiom, to love somebody and to hate somebody, it's basically it seems to be a way, Garland says in his commentary, of saying to prefer, to give special privilege to. Not, so hate is a strong word. That was always what I heard as a kid. Not so much in Judaism. It just means prefer less. Jacob have I loved, Israel have I hated. So it's this way of saying, I prefer this one over that one. But, but look how, how this is defined. Against anyone among your people. In the ESV, it, it helps us here. It's anyone among the sons of your fathers. It's your blood relatives. It's your people. And so what Israel seemed to do with this command is say, look, I get that we're told to love your neighbor, but because it says the sons of, of our family, that means I don't have to love those people. They're outsiders. We're insiders. We're good guys. They're bad guys. I have to love them. I don't have to love those. But Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not ever the point of that command. Don't hate a fellow Israelite. But notice something else here, that the type of love for neighbor that he has in mind is rebuke, non-retaliation, and non-resentment. Again, this isn't passive love. This is active love. This is confrontational love in the face of conflict. When Jesus says to love your enemies, he's drawing on this passage that says you need to go and confront your enemies. Walk humbly but also do justice. This has always been the call of God's people. It's this balance of tenderness and toughness that are held together in what we call love. Love your enemies is not passive, it's active. It's not non-resistance per se, but it's non-violent resistance. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, who would Jesus have included in enemies? Well, it's at least the Romans, but it seems to also be, if you keep reading, basically anyone who's evil. He, he says, the Lord makes the rainfall on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. These are unjust, ungodly, evil people who are in power or not in power. It doesn't matter. These are people who've wronged you or they've slighted you and they're on the outside of your family. He says, I'm, I mean all of those. He says, pray for those who persecute you. This is kind of riffing on what he says earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, he says, blessed are these peacemakers. He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. He says, a servant is not above his master in Matthew chapter 12. He says, when you suffer because of your enemies, I have solidarity with you in a special way. We are persecuted together. So he says, those who persecute you, then you'll be children of your father in heaven. You think your love is dependent on whose children they're a part of, whose sons of which father. He says, no, 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 no. Your love is because of whose father you are or you have, whose father you have. When you do this, you get this special experience of the love of God that makes you to experience your childlike state with him. So he says he causes his 
sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Basically what he's saying is, God is generous to all of us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He's gracious. The sun and the rain and every other good gift. We'll, we'll come back to this idea. But really the heart of what we're saying is, he says you have to go above and beyond the world around you. He says instead of looking just like the world when it comes to how we treat our enemies, he says we're actually expected to go beyond the world and look to our Father instead. He says if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect is a hard word for us. In the context, Jonathan Pennington, he's written a lot on this. He says it basically means whole, where the inside matches the outside. He says love in a way where the inside, how you've been loved, shows up on the outside, how you're loving other people. In a phrase, when we're wronged, we retaliate with love. Do you mind to say that? When we're wronged, we retaliate with love. A couple of things I want to draw attention to. Notice that we retaliate. We do retaliate. We do respond. We do stand up. In some ways, we could even say we resist. But we retaliate with love. This is the way of Jesus. I want to answer a few objections. These are objections I've heard in my own ministry, and I've heard in a lot of conversations. One objection, but this isn't practical, is it? This isn't practical. Can you really do that? If everybody did that, then where would we be? This isn't practical. In, in some ways, I, I get it, but let me answer first. Practicality is irrelevant when it comes to following Jesus. The call of Jesus is to take up your cross and follow me. That's where it starts. Who knows where it's going? Practicality is irrelevant. Faithfulness, not effectiveness, is our guide. So, is it practical? Practicality is irrelevant. Jesus Christ is crucified. Practicality doesn't seem to be his driving interest. And if he is Lord, it's his way or no. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, when Jesus says, I say, that's enough for me. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? If you're after practicality, he's got the power of practicality if he wants it. Jesus here, it may not feel practical, it may not be practical, but still, the New Testament says, this is the example put forth for us to follow, 1 Peter 2, Sprinkle in his book. In fact, the New Testament highlights Jesus' nonviolent response to violence as a pattern to follow more than any other aspect of his ministry. Not only is practicality irrelevant, but I actually think nonviolence is more practical than violence. Are you really sure that violence is the best long-term response? When Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, in his speech, he says this, violence is a way of achieving racial justice, or any other really, is both, violence, he says, is both impractical and immoral. 
I am not unmindful of the fact that violence often brings about momentary results. Nations have frequently won their independence in battle, but in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. In reality, the most successful social revolutions that have ever happened have been nonviolent. There's recently a study that came out that showed that nonviolent revolutions are two times as effective as violent revolutions, even in the short term, certainly in the long term. So what has to happen is that these cycles of violence have to be absorbed somewhere. And Jesus is saying it's absorbed in his people in the kingdom. This is actually the most effective, the most practical way to bring peace. So, isn't this impractical? It's actually more practical, and practicality is irrelevant. Second objection. But isn't this passive? Now, some people, you really want some kind of active resistance, something that stands for something, not just submits to the injustices of the world around us. And it seems on the surface, especially when Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, that Jesus is advocating something that never stands up for good. But that's actually not what Jesus is advocating. Consistently, in his context, there seem to be two responses. The first response is you can go the way of violence. This is the way of the zealots. This is the Sicarii. They're the dagger men. They would assassinate key political leaders in, in secret. It sounds almost like, I forget the name of that video game, with the hooded dude. Yeah. Thank you. I knew some of you would help me out. Man, Nisha, got me. There's the way of violence, but there's also the way of victimhood, where passive actually comes from this word, suffer. But that's not what Jesus is advocating here. He's not advocating passiveness as much as he is what some have called pacifism. Pacifism comes from a totally different word, not from the word suffer, but from pax, the word for peace. It's actually his call to make peace. Peacemaking stands for something. It stands for shalom. It stands for the good. McKnight, in his commentary, he says, Jesus does not advocate passivity, but active generosity. Pennington, it's non-retaliatory righteousness. It still stands for something. Dr. King, nonviolent resistance does resist. It is dynamically active. It is passive physically but it's strongly active spiritually. And so what we see here is it's the call of love, and love isn't passive, it's active. It's not so much about non-resistance because Jesus resisted evil in so many ways, and he calls us to do it too. It's this positive action that there's not an inkling of resignation here. So MLK, he says, true pacifism or nonviolent resistance is courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. McKnight, pacifism isn't quietism or withdrawal or inactivity, and it isn't simply submission. Pacifism's root is connected to the peacemaking beatitude, active peace. Pacifism isn't a lack of interest or non-involvement, but the hard work of seeking peace. Pacifism is nonviolent resistance, not non-resistance. And so we could say it like this in the language of 1 Corinthians 13. 
Love does not insist on its own way. It bears all things. And so love is not violent. We can say that love endures all things. And so love is the way to absorb injustice and break the cycle. And we can say that love hopes all things. Because it sees the kingdom even though it's not fully realized. Love is not self-seeking. It's outward moving. It seeks the good of another through confrontation, the, the frank rebuke of someone in sin so that you don't go along with it. it. It's where you go and show them their fault in Matthew 18. Love forgives, but it does not bury. So, is this passive? No. No, Jesus is actually saying something very active, and it's the active form. It's the retaliation of love. Third, last, last objection here. When we're wronged, we retaliate with love. But this is impossible. Who can actually do this? And the answer is that there is one, at least, who can. This is pretty amazing. When you look at Jesus, commentaries, they show that if you just pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, every one of these has a pointer to later on in the story of Jesus. Non-retaliation. How about Jesus? It says, who went quiet as a sheep before the slaughterer. Slapped and backhanded? Matthew 26, later on, in the same gospel, they spit in his face and they struck him, same word, with their fist. And others slapped him, forced to go a mile. We see this story in Matthew 27 where Simon Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Simon, Mark says, you know, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus, they show up in Romans. They seem to be part of the group that planted the first church in Rome. Here's a man who, who went the extra mile and made all the difference. Stripped. Would you really give away your shirt and your coat? When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Same word, clothes. He's, he's here humiliated, stripped as an act of peace. Would he pray for his persecutors? If you are reading the Sermon on the Mount, the very next pe person that he helps is a Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said, from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. What about enemy love? Could someone really love their enemies? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 of Romans 5. For if, when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were enemies, while we were sinners, he, he did it all. And so you can say this is impossible, but we know it's not because of what he's done for us. And in discovering what he's done for us, we find the power that feels impossible. Matthew 19, Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, the power for enemy love doesn't come from self-love. Contrary to 
it seems, every movement that's happening today for justice. It is not the assertion of the self. It is the love of God. The modern identity wants to practice self-love and find itself and then express itself and, and say, I deserve this. And that actually may be true, but there is a more fundamental, more foundational love that has to be the power. Otherwise, it will turn into more cycles of vengeance and violence and retaliation. And the one source of love is the grace of God in Jesus Christ who while we were sinners and while we were enemies, died for us on the cross. This is who we are. This is why we gather around the table and share the bread and the cup, because we are the people who have been saved by grace. We have been loved by God, despite who we've been. There's some people here today who probably feel like, I don't really belong here. <laughs> uh, if you feel like that, that is, that is a... a that's on us, not on your Father in heaven, not on his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loves you and knows you. He sees everything you've ever done, and while you were there in your sin and as an enemy, he gave his life for you. So, isn't this impossible? Oh, no. This is the only thing that makes it possible. The grace of God moves us to share the grace and the mercy with others. <clears throat> Today, our group, and this week, many of our groups are going to be practicing what we call the forgiveness cycle. I want to introduce this, and we won't go any further, but I, I just hope you show up to your group this month whenever you do the pray and reflect. I, I'm convinced that the work of loving our enemies begins with forgiving our enemies. You may not feel like you have many enemies. Certainly, our nation doesn't have a lot of enemies right now. Our city doesn't have a lot of enemies right now. You may have some personal enemies right now. But there may be someone in your heart where you're needing to get rid of resentment and bitterness and the grudge that is there. And this is a good place to begin. I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to prepare in peacetime for the war that is coming in the future. And as you kind of go over the hill and you see the planes landing and you see the squadrons of troops, we realize that this has to be stronger than that. And so it begins in forgiveness, where you, you mount up and identify the debts, where you pass them to Jesus, and you find the power of being loved that can overcome the ways that you've been wronged. Because when we're wronged, we retaliate with love. I think I'll just close there today. Um, let me just skip forgiveness cycle and commit it to our group leaders. Um, and can you just take a second to just imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church who knew how to forgive each other? To be a part of a marriage who knew how to forgive each other? To have a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters who knew how to forgive each other. To be a part of a city that was so wounded and traumatized by violence and vengeance and cycles. Where there could be a people who rose up. The people of the kingdom of God. Who knew that love could absorb injustice. And be a vehicle of justice at the same time. 
this is the only way. This is the most practical way. It's the most powerful way. It's the way of Jesus. All right, would you stand? Let me pray for you. We'll be done. Oh God, our merciful King, who loves us, Father, would you fill our hearts with your love and soften us? And would you send us out with your love, with courage and boldness? Would you make this a place of peace? A people of peace, a people of peacemaking. For those who are on the front lines in efforts for healing with mental health and physical brokenness, those on the front lines and raising kids to be people of peace, would you give them extra strength? For those who are wounded and traumatized by what people have done, Father, would you offer the solidarity of Jesus Christ who understands suffering? And Holy Spirit, would you burden us and deliver us from burdens in your wisdom for how to carry this message message forward. For the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen.